Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the CSIS Cybersecurity Podcast Series. My name is Katrina Timlin, and I'm a research assistant with the Technology and Public Policy Program at CSIS. Jody Westby, CEO of Global Cyber Risk, has recently co-authored and edited the book, The Quest for Cyberpeace. This book was also written by Hamadoun Toure, Secretary General of the International Telecommunications Union and members of the World Federation of Scientists' Permanent Monitoring Panel on Information Security. Ms. Westby, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. What precipitated the decision to write a book on this topic? Well, the World Federation of Scientists' Permanent Monitoring Panel on Information Security, which I co-chair, has focused a lot on, we were one of the first groups to focus on cyber conflict, and we became increasingly concerned about the drumbeat of all the cyber commands being stood up, and then the attacks that increasingly were being blamed on or people were suspicious were sponsored by nation states. And it seemed that everyone was very busy looking at ways to attack using cyber capabilities, but nobody was focusing on what does that mean for society and should we really be looking at a way to have cyber peace. In the book, you define geocyber stability as the ability of all countries to use the Internet for economic, political, and demographic benefit while refraining from activities that could cause unnecessary suffering and destruction. How far is the global community from achieving this state? Not. Zero. (laughs) What timeline um, or actions are deemed necessary to arrive at this goal? Well, you know, the Internet was developed because the Air Force was concerned back at the end of World War II about our ability to maintain essential minimum communications in the event of a nuclear attack. So the Internet was developed with packet switching technology uh, so that it, it would provide that system. The irony is that the brainchild of the Cold War has now turned into, you know, the weapon of the 21st century. And so when we've looked at the different kinds of attacks and and the malware, malicious activities occurring online, it's growing exponentially. And we're not able to keep up with it. The bad guys are clearly winning. Whether it's cybercrime or if it's a nation-state activity, the bad guys are winning. It's very difficult to catch them and prosecute them. And so it's become a real haven for criminal activity. So we think that countries should start thinking about what are the essential minimum communications that a society needs. When you look at the laws of armed conflict, they're based on land, air, sea, armed conflict. Um, the NATO charter, the, uh, the NATO treaty, the UN charter, any of the documents that deal with laws of armed conflict, like Geneva Conventions, Hague Conventions, it's actually a, a rather large and somewhat confusing confusing body of law, but um, it's all based around traditional warfare, except over the years these instruments have been updated. As we developed airplanes and had air warfare, we updated them. Prior to that, we updated them to accommodate navies. Um, but they really are out of touch with, with respect to cyber. So when you look at the Internet being the central nervous system of the society, and you look at the laws of armed conflict, which are supposed to prevent unnecessary harm and destruction, to protect civilians, to protect civilian targets, to um, uh, enable uh, 
protected zones uh, from being attacked. That's impossible with the Internet. So n very little progress has been made in looking at what are the minimum essential communications that, that not a military needs, but that a society needs if there's a cyber attack. Because if we attack communication systems, and the U.S. has probably attacked communication systems and used cyber warfare more than any other country in the world, which is probably why we're not too interested in, in addressing these issues. It's convenient for us to be able to have this tool. But when you look at what happens when you attack communication infrastructure, you disrupt hospitals, you disrupt electricity grids, you disrupt the very fiber of what enables society to function. So the minimum essential communications issue is a huge issue of what does that mean to military, what does it mean to civilians, what does it mean in the context of international law, what rights are provided to people, and what does it mean in the context of laws of armed conflict. Going off of the minimal amount of essential uh, infrastructure that you spoke of, uh, some viruses have the tendency to spread beyond their intended target. Um, so how can nations or actors, uh, how are they able to ensure that an attack would not unintentionally affect this protected infrastructure? Is it more in uh, developing these weapons or developing the defenses? Well, we don't know for sure what weapons our nation-state developed other than probably what we do our own and what we suspect from what we've analyzed. But um, a lot of this malware has far-reaching consequences beyond maybe what was intended. But frankly, the people that launch it don't really care. If they get their target, they don't care about the unintended consequences or whatever else ripple effect comes from that. They just want to achieve what they were trying to do. And so there's... Um, almost a sociopathic tendency by these people uh, that are engaging in this conduct, which is increasingly, you know, very well-organized criminal rings. There's very big money behind this. But if it's nation-state uh, activity, then also you can look at it and say, uh, it, you know, do we care? We should care, because there is a rule of law, and they should be looking at what is a target. You're absolutely required to distinguish between civilian and military targets and between civilian and military pro uh, property. And so, and only to do things that would accomplish military objectives. So if you're nation state sponsored and you're having an attack, you need to be sure that you're not doing something that's going to, as you say, go spread beyond what it was originally intended, or you're going to be violating those key principles. Mm -hmm. And what role is a, does the U.S. government have as a nation-state to um, lead this effort to ensure international cooperation and promote global cyber peace? Well, we have, uh, of course, a role on, on the United Nations Security Council, which is a key position to raise these kinds of issues. We also, of course, are a member of NATO. We um, also um, are, as the world's only superpower at this point, and the country that developed the Internet, although the World Wide Web was developed by Europeans, um, but we are one of the countries that should be a natural leader for this. We have not been. Um, so the Russians for years had advocated for 10 years, advocated at the United Nations that this should be treated like arms control. We have some key Russians on my, our World Federation of 
scientist permanent monitoring panel. We initially argued with them and said, that's Cold War stuff, get over it. We're now in the 21st century, this is the internet, where you don't want to talk about arms control. They went off and they wrote some papers and came back. And reading their papers, we started looking at electromagnetic forces and things like that, and we decided, you know, maybe they're right. Anyway, for 10 years they put a resolution before the United Nations General Assembly. And for 10 years it was passed, um, advocating that there be some limitations and, and multinational uh, agreement and restraint on, on what would be um, targeted. And we opposed it every year. The United States vetoed, uh, not vetoed, we, we voted no. Until year before last, we were the only no vote. The entire United Nations voted for this resolution except the United States. I find that embarrassing. This year, we did negotiate um, a few word changes, I think, to save face so that we could then say, now we support it. So for the first time, we supported it. So the, the United States has not taken a leadership role. It's actually been obstructionist, but it's time that it, it shows more leadership, primarily because, not that we invented the Internet, but primarily because we're now only 12% of the online population. We are increasingly becoming irrelevant. And we need to speak while we still have the, um, the voice that people will listen to. Mm -hmm. So we haven't shown the leadership we could in all of those multinational fora, we just have not, and I'm hoping that, that that will change. Ms. Westby, thanks again for joining us, and thank you for tuning into the CSIS Cybersecurity Podcast Series. For more, please visit us at CSIS.org or at CSIS on iTunes. Thank you. I will.